Amen. Man, it is so good to be with you guys this morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Yeah, you're still totally frozen. That's cool. I bet you guys at home are nice and toasty warm. Good morning to you and to you up in Fort Lupton. I know that that HVAC system works like a charm. So as long as you guys have it set correctly, it's probably like maybe even too warm. I don't know. It's just beautiful. 72 in there. It just feels like home to me. Mm, love it so much. My name is Tim Griesbach. I get to be one of our pastors here at Crossroads Church. And man, I am just shocked that it's already Christmas time which is kind of weird. I know that as you get older, at least from my experience and from the experience I've gleaned from others further on in life than me, it seems like time sort of goes by faster. But this year has been a little weird, hasn't it? It felt like simultaneously like the longest year I think I can remember. And at the same time, somehow we're already here in December, just boom. And, and we're going to just cruise on through the end of the year. And it's like, wow, already here. I'd like to invite you to think back to a time around Christmas in your childhood when you received an awesome gift. For some of you, that might only be like a year ago. Uh, for some of you, that might be like several decades or many decades, who knows, right? But think back to a time when you were a little one and you received an awesome Christmas gift. For me, one of the most memorable Christmas gifts I received, I was probably about eight years old, and my parents gave me a Nintendo Entertainment System. The original NES, you know, the one with Mario and Duck Hunt and Mario 3 and like awesome games, right? And uh, just a while before that, like earlier in that year, one of my friends had gotten a Nintendo Entertainment System. And I went over to her house and she's showing me Mario and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. <laughs> I love this. What is this? I don't understand it, but like I, I would like to acquire this. And so I talked to my parents and they said, yeah, just save up your allowance for it. I'm like, all right, we're going to do it. And so I took my dollar allowance per week, you know, and it's like 10 cents of that goes towards savings. 10 cents goes to the church. So I'm left with 80 cents a week and I'm going to save up for a Nintendo entertainment system. Something to remember about little kids. They're both really bad at math and bad at under like estimating time. <laughs> Right? So 80 cents a week for a $100 system is going to take you, what, just over two years. But I was like, this is going to be so worth it. And so I am like aiming for this system and so excited for it and just faithfully saving up my money, not spending it on anything else. So we get to Christmas that year and there's this package. And that was like not even on the radar, right? Because this is something I'm saving up for. And I open it up and lo and behold, a Nintendo Entertainment System. Not only with Mario, with the Duck Hunt, which I still don't quite know how that all worked technology-wise. But it also had Super Mario Brothers 3, which is probably one of the best games ever released for the NES. And I remember just being utterly shocked and surprised. And I'm looking at my parents like, are you kidding me? And in the back of my head, I'm like, okay, not only do I get to enjoy this now, but that means all that money I've been saving can go to something else. <laughs> I'm, I'm a saver in life in general. It's just what it is. And so I'd be really curious to hear from you guys, like what some of the gifts that you've received in your life around Christmas time have just like stuck in your mind. You know, if you're online, you can like toss that in the comments real easily or no matter where you are, you can actually just text our text line. I didn't give them a heads up that we're going to do this. And so I would love to see if we could flood them with just some ideas of like things that you have personally enjoyed. And so if you text 720-513-1933 and you can just say, one of my favorite Christmas gifts was, and then whatever it was. Maybe it was like an easy bake oven. Maybe it was a little bicycle. Who knows what it is? Um, but man, there's just something about this time of year with Christmas 
when it comes to gift giving. Like, especially in our culture, we make a big deal out of gift giving in this time. And, you know, some of the more cynical uh, parts of us probably look at the commercial aspects of it and say, man, it's just a big old racket. Like, people are just trying to make money. And, yeah, there's definitely an aspect of that, right? But I know that for us, and for me specifically, like, gift giving isn't only attached to this big commercial enterprise when it comes to Christmas. And that's because when we look at the Christmas story, the very first Christmas, Jesus himself was the recipient, even as a little baby, of some incredible gifts. And over the next few weeks, we are going to take a look at those gifts together. We're going to take a look at gold and frankincense and myrrh, and we're going to see how these gifts were not only super practical for that family as they were just starting off, but how they were incredibly symbolic and how there's actually meaning and power and glory for us to experience through those gifts today. So with that, we're going to jump right in to our text today, which is going to be Matthew chapter 2. This is uh, going to be headed probably in your Bible as the visit of the wise men. And I'm going to read through this section, and then we'll uh, enjoy some, some of this information and news, really, together. So, starting with verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. A lot of us are probably familiar, at least tangentially, with this story, partly because of some of the Christmas songs we have, right? Like the song, We Three Kings, We Three Kings of Orient Are, and, uh, which is just a great example of how our Christmas songs take a lot of poetic license at times uh, as they're expressing some of the joy and fun that happens at Christmas. Because we don't actually know that there were three of them. We just know the three different kinds of gifts. And we don't actually know that they're kings. I mean, the text itself actually refers to them here as wise men, or the, another translation for that would just be magi, probably best understood as astrologers. 
And, and when it says that they came from the Orient in our song, you know, really they probably came from somewhere in Iran and that general area. But nonetheless, you have these individuals who are trying to understand the plans and purposes of God as revealed in his creation. And God, for whatever beautiful reason, just says, you know what? I'm going to let you in on some awesome news, some incredible secret that's going to happen. And so here's a star and follow this star and you're going to find something incredible. Just make sure you bring some treasure because you're going to want to worship when you get there. And so they made their way and they offered their gifts. And so, you know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, like these things had incredible practical value for these families. But we also see that there's incredible symbolic value in each of these gifts. And that's what we're going to be looking at. We see that the gold symbolized Jesus' royalty. And that the frankincense symbolized Jesus' divinity. And that the myrrh symbolized Jesus' humanity. And it's this last one that we're going to spend a little time looking at today. If you're wondering, like, why would you say that myrrh would represent Jesus' humanity? Well, there's like three basic uses for myrrh back in the biblical times. Uh, The first use would have just been like a perfume or an incense. Uh, There's a spot in the Old Testament where it's talking about this mixture of oils and different things for incense to offer up before God, and myrrh is one of those ingredients. Or if you're feeling risky, you could go to the Song of Solomon where you will see myrrh all over the place because it's like a pretty nice perfume. My wife actually has a little bit of myrrh as an essential oil, and so I took some of that this morning and put it on me, and I was like, ooh, this is different. This is like, it's got a really kind of a nice smell to it. It's almost resiny. It's fascinating. It's so thick. Like, one of the bottles that she has actually is locked shut, and I've got kind of girly hands, and so I'm trying to still think of how in the world I'm going to open that one up so that we can eventually enjoy it. Um, But then uh, the second use that we saw Uh, for myrrh within the biblical times was kind of medicinal. Like you could use it as something to dull some of the senses, like if you were in pain, right? So like you could take that to kind of dull some of that. But the most significant we see in the Bible, and one in which Jesus himself had direct interaction with, real poignantly, was that it was used for embalming. In John chapter 19, we have Nicodemus, after Jesus had been crucified, it was taken off the cross and they're getting ready to bear him. Nicodemus showed up And he brought along with him 75 pounds of myrrh mixed with aloes. And so they're going to wrap him and they're going to coat him in this in order to embalm him because he will have died. And so right at the very beginning of Jesus' life, he is still a little infant, a baby at this point. One of these gifts offered by these magi is pointing all the way to the day where this human would die. And if you're a little bit like me, which to mean, I I mean, like if you're a little arrogant like me. Yeah, Brad's laughing because he he just, he gets to spend so much time with me. He gets it. Sometimes I have just probably not the best thoughts. But like if you're at all like me in that sense, maybe you've had the thought like this. Like if I were God, which if you have started a thought like that, not great, right? Like you probably already know you've screwed up. But, you know, you ask the question to yourself, like if I were God, I bet I could figure out a way to solve this problem without Jesus having to die. Without anybody having to die. Surely there's a way to do that, right? Why do you think Jesus needed to be sacrificed? I want to answer that question today. I want to dig into scripture and remind our souls of what's at stake 
That it's not just this little fairy tale kind of happy story. That's incredible. But the love that we see present within this story is unparalleled. It is the epic love story. In all time, in all places, of all history, like, it's it. And if you want to understand the question, like, why would Jesus have to be sacrificed? You have to go all the way back to the beginning. When we first open our Bibles and get to the very first chapter of the first book, Genesis chapter 1, we see this incredible reality that God, out of this overflow of his own love, decided to make creatures to be in relationship with him and to reflect what he is like. It says that he made them male and female in his image, which means he made us to be image bearers of himself, which means like when we walk around, like the intended purpose, right, is that as I'm going through life and I'm walking around, I'm thinking to myself, okay, here's, here, here I go as a little portrait of what God is like. Like as I love this person, I'm going to love them in a way that like God loves. I'm going to reflect that. I'm going to be honest and really truthful. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be just. I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to give of myself. Like, we're going to look like this. But when you flip the page and get to Genesis chapter 3, you see it didn't last all that long. That the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, decided to reject that plan that God had for humanity and say, I'd rather do things my own way, thank you very kindly. And as they ate the fruit from the forbidden tree, sin entered the world. And it's hard for us to comprehend just what a huge impact that actually was. I mean, the coronavirus gets a lot of attention in the news today, right? Like, all the cases are rising. Cases rising. Cases rising. This thing's super contagious. Be careful. Be careful. Like, there wouldn't have been time if they'd had all the information technology in the world at that point, because sin came in and instantly just infected everything. Everything is then tainted with sin. Meaning, it has a predisposition now to reject God's plan, to be in relationship with him, and for humans to reject his plan, to reflect him well. And as you continue on into the story, you see it just goes downhill so fast. Cain killing Abel, lies and treachery and just all kinds of terrible things. But thankfully, in that same chapter in Genesis 3, we see that God also included this incredible promise that he said, one of the descendants of Eve is going to defeat this sin thing. Which in my mind is stunning because it means God knew what he was getting himself into before he even made us. It's not like he made us and we rejected him and he goes, oh, what happened? That even before this, he had a plan and that this was going to result in in our good, and it was going to result in his glory, that we were going to be able to see something about him, about what he's like, that we would not otherwise be able to see. Fast forward a bit, and God identifies this one man, Abraham, and says, I'm going to make out of you this incredible nation, and through you I'm going to bless all of the earth. And this was like a reiteration of this promise made to Adam and to Eve. You fast forward even more and you see that, yes, indeed, God has made a huge nation out of Abraham. In Exodus chapter 20, you've got the nation of Israel having just left Egypt. Like their first experience of freedom as a whole people, as a whole nation, millions now. 
And one of the first things they get to experience is God meets with one of the representatives, Moses, one of their leaders up on a mountain, and he gives them the law. You're probably familiar with the Ten Commandments. It's way more than ten if you're looking at the whole of the law, but he gives them the law. And what he's doing there is he's putting on display this picture. He's like, this is what living in right relationship with me and in right relationship with each other is going to look like. This is what you want to reflect me accurately? Like, do this stuff. And you think, wow, this is awesome. God's making a way for us to get back into being in a right relationship with him. Well, if you keep reading a little bit, you see that it just failed over and over and over. Like Laura's smiling, right? Because she's like taught how many little kids about the failures of people when it comes to actually like living up to God's picture of what right relationship with him looks like, what reflecting him looks like. And it gets so bad that we have this description in Romans chapter 3 that looks like this, as it's describing just like the state of humans. And specifically here, it's like, oh yeah, even the ones who God chose, who, whom have the law, who like have the best possible shot at all humans ever at getting this thing right, because God has said, hey, you don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder what you should do. Here's all you got to do. Here's what it would look like. This is how it describes them. Starting in verse 10 of Romans chapter 3, it says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Should pause, because I think sometimes we like to skip phrases like that because it's unpleasant. That is gross. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. When the people of Israel received the law, they had in their mind like, sweet, finally a way for us to get back to what it was like in the garden, finally a way for us to enjoy this relationship with our God, to, to fix the stuff and the problems. And what we see here is that's not at all what the law actually accomplished. And that the issue wasn't that the law was bad. The issue was that we all are carrying around that sin still with us. And we're not able to actually execute this picture of living in right relationship with him and with each other and reflecting what he's like. And if you're honest with yourself, isn't that true of you as well? That in your life, in my life, don't we have this tendency to, to lie? To not exactly like hold on to the truth with total conviction? Don't we have this tendency to hate, to be angry with those around us? To the point where sometimes we kill, and I know like probably you are here, and you're like, well, I've never killed anybody. Yeah, but I bet at some point in your life you probably wanted to. 
right? At some point in your life, you probably had a friend or a family member and you're just like, man, that person, I just hate them. Isn't that present in our hearts? That we're willing to put others down in order to elevate our own position. And that if we're honest and we take a look at that picture, we go, okay, I can't do that. And the problem with not being able to do that is one of the characteristics of God is that he's just. Now, as a judge, you would like a judge to be just, right? All of us want a just judge if we are the one who has been victimized. None of us really love a just judge if we're the offender. And in this situation, when it comes to accurately reflecting what he's like and walking in relationship with him, we are the offenders. And because he's just, which is a really good thing, that puts us in incredible danger. Because now we are the objects that deserve condemnation. And that's just a fancy word for saying guilty. We don't even have the ability to defend ourselves. We don't have any excuses that we can make. Like, that's the situation we find ourselves in. And it's for this very reason that Jesus came, as we see in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. This sin thing that had infected everyone had to be condemned. It had to be called out for what it is. This is not right. And yet that was present in us. And what I want you to hear today as you are thinking about all of this is that God chose to sacrifice his son in order to not sacrifice us. There was no way, there was no solution where you, no one had to die, right? If it was you or me being God, we probably would have created humans to begin with at all, right? Because like, I know for me, I'm probably not loving enough. Or if we had, we probably would have said like, you know what, they've sinned, we should just start over. Let's do this again. I don't like this, this problem. I don't want to become human forever. I don't want to suffer alongside my creation. I don't want to die. I don't want to bear their guilt. That's what I would have said. But that's not what our God is like. That from the very beginning, he had this incredible plan that because we would need rescuing out from under the condemnation that was just stuck inside of us, there's no escape, there's no way to clean ourselves, that God said, I will become one of you and I will be sacrificed so that I don't have to sacrifice you. And all of this beauty and glory is seen in this simple gift given to little baby Jesus of myrrh, pointing to the fact that one day he would die and that this death would be the death that we actually deserve in order that we might get 
life with him, in part now with the expectation of the fullness of it forever. So what do we do with this then? Right? Like if you're like me, I get to this spot and my heart is just burning and I'm like, okay, God, like, wow. Like you're just incredible, but I need something to do with this. And so I've got three things that every single one of us, no matter where you're at, three things that all of us can do in this season when it comes to the humanity, the sacrifice of Jesus. The first is I want to invite you to receive Jesus personally. I don't just mean this like, like, like add him into the list of things that you think are good ideas in general. I mean like, like receive him completely. And receive him, it's something that only you can do, to receive him personally. I mean, the way that I think about this is if, imagine if little eight-year-old Tim, or I guess at that point Timmy, right, he gets this NES as, for Christmas and he looks at it and he's just like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Thank you, mom and dad. Thank you so much. And then I like set it in the closet or put it off People are going to think, what? My mom and dad would have gone, what is happening there? Why aren't you actually interacting with the gift that we gave you? We gave you this gift in order to use it, to, to enjoy it. And so when I say and receive it personally, I mean like if you, I want you, even if you've heard this story, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times in your life, to let it sink down into the very depths of your heart, your conviction, and to believe the truth that, wow, I'm in desperate need of being rescued from this condemnation and Christ made it possible. And that by trusting that this is true and following him as my Lord and my Savior, I'm forgiven. And to let that actually play out every single day in your life in this season. That's the first thing I want to invite you to do. Receive Jesus personally. The second thing I want to invite you to do is to celebrate Jesus communally. Even during this season where a lot of us are kind of isolated from each other, there will be times where we're together, where we have small groups. Maybe you're actually in a period of isolation right now just so that you can see some family for Christmas. In this season, when you get together, whether it's friends or whether it's just family, I want to invite you to celebrate Jesus communally. Let his gift be the gift that you guys are most excited about in this season. And it takes a little bit of work. Like we just have to meditate on it and dwell on it and remind our souls, sometimes even preaching to our own souls to say, soul, wake up a little bit. This is some good stinking news. Get excited, heart. You've been rescued. You've been adopted. Celebrate Jesus communally. And the third thing I want to invite you to do in this season is to embody Jesus sacrificially. Remember that if we've put our trust in Jesus, his very spirit then dwells inside of us, producing in us good fruit that we could not possibly do on our own. And so you've been empowered through the work of the spirit and you through faith to do incredible things like look like God. And in this season, as we receive the gift of Jesus having been sacrificed for us, let us look around in our own lives to say, what would it look like for me to sacrifice in order to love the people in my lives? Maybe that's my neighbors and I know that they're isolated and there's something I can do, some energy or money or whatever that I can spend in order to make them know that they are loved. Or perhaps it's family. 
that you just really struggle with. And you think, man, even being with them is a sacrifice. Like, let your heart spend some time with the king enough to be reminded like, wow, you gave up so much in order to rescue little me, in order to be with me, in order to not give up me. To the degree that you then become willing to go way out, to endure great expense to yourself for the sake of the people in your family and to love them well as a response to how you've been loved by God. So receive Jesus personally. Celebrate Jesus communally. Embody Jesus sacrificially. And I want to talk to you specifically for those of you who, when I talked about that first one and said, receive Jesus personally and something pricked inside your soul. And you thought to yourself, I think I want to do that. I don't think I've actually done that before. And I, I want to receive Jesus personally. It's really simple. It's not easy. It will cost you everything. Because you get to join in following Jesus. And you see here in this gift of myrrh, a little picture of what he got to experience, right? He died. But it's life. It's being a part of the actual true story of all of history. It's getting to walk with our God and creator in this life with the expectation of being with him forever. And it's just a matter of believing the news. And when you hear the news that you can be made right with our creator again, that you're saved, when you believe the news that Jesus came, lived, and died as a sacrifice for the sin that's in you, and then came back to life to prove that it was real and to display what that life would look like. If you believe that news, the Bible says you're saved. So if you want to do that today, I want to invite you to receive Jesus personally. If you want to do that, I would also invite you to send a text to our same hotline. You're just going to text the name Jesus and it's not because that's something that gets you saved, but it's because we don't want you to go through this alone. Part of what it means to follow Jesus is to follow him together. And so I'd invite you to do that now, and I'm going to pray for you as we move our hearts to then remember Christ's sacrifice by taking communion together. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you became flesh in order that we might not be sacrificed, in order that we might not experience that condemnation that we actually deserve. Thank you. Lord, our, our hearts sometimes are just cold towards these truths. So I pray that you'd soften and warm us up so that we can believe with full conviction that we can truly enjoy the gift that you've given us in your son, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that for those who are deciding in this moment to follow you, oh, Lord, will you let them know, even as they do, put their trust in you, would you let them know that they are yours? And would you help us as we all walk along together in following after you with all of our hearts? Father, we thank you that you've made this possible, and we praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. We're going to.